Good morning. This is John Richardson speaking with you from Toronto, Canada. Today is Monday, January the 15th, and yes, we are into 2024. And this is our ongoing series of podcasts to introduce Laura Snyder's 16-part series, uh, which is a set of working papers found on the SEAT website, which is seatnow.org. And today we are at Paper number six, they're all about extraterritorial taxation. So extraterritorial taxation, number six, today's title is No Compelling Government Interest, a broad and interesting topic. And today, again, we have Laura Snyder in Paris and Karen Alpert in Australia. So how is everybody today? Let's start with Karen. It's in the evening for you, I believe, isn't it? It is late in the evening for me, John. It's It's been a wet and warm day today. Okay. I can tell you it is a deep freeze in Toronto, Canada. And Laura, are you warm in Paris? Yes, I'm somewhere in between the two of you. Chilly here, but not that cold. Chilly, but not that cold. All right. Well... Let's get started with this today, uh, another very, very interesting topic. And once again, I encourage listeners to go to the SEAT website at seatnow.org and actually read these papers in sequence. They are wonderful. Uh, they are great learning tools. And Karen, why don't I turn this over to you today to lead our discussion? Okay, thank you, John. Um, Laura's written some excellent papers for our, our working paper series. And um, in this one, really the, this one has, has two, um, two parts to it. In the first part, we're, we're basically looking at all those rationales we talked at, about in the last um, podcast and saying, but wait a minute, What's, what's life really like on the ground for Americans overseas? Okay, so, um, you know, what, what is the experience of being an American overseas um, subject to this extraterritorial tax system? And uh, what do you think, Laura? Is it a fun prospect to be an American taxpayer overseas? I would say no, it's not. Um, yeah, what what the first part of this number six is trying to do is to to say, okay, you know, in 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 the fifth paper, number five, we looked at what are the different ways that different people have tried to rationalize the current system, and we've looked at each of those rationalizations and refuted them uh, based on you know the components of that rationalization and why it's not right. And what the first part of the sixth paper, well, the first parts two, three, and four of the sixth paper try and do is uh, say, okay, you can have all these rationales. They're all theoretical. Not a single one of them really looks at what the system is today and how complex it is, how penalizing it is, how devastating its effects are, how the IRS cannot administer it. So you've got all of these rationales, theoretical, say how great, you know, how right it is to, to, to tax overseas Americans, not one of them acknowledges or addresses the, what the system really is and all of its really um, intractable problems. 
and how it's experienced by real people living living outside the U.S. Yeah. So you've listed a, a fairly long list of complexities and and penalties that people face. Um, and you know, a lot of these are fairly well known, like the uh, passive foreign investment companies and the non-US retirement plans, etc. Um, in going through these, the one that I found that I hadn't thought of that carefully before was this whole the the um, earned income exclusion. And what is earned income? And you know, that sounds like such a basic question, but if I um well, not me, but if somebody goes on maternity leave and is being paid by their employer, is that earned income? Well, and this that's, is what, that's not clear. That's not clear. Not, it depends. Yeah. Absolutely not clear. Um, unemployment income. But also not, not clear. Yeah. But not clear. And there's disability. Going, also not clear. There's, there's, yeah. With the foreign earned income exclusion, you know, you have people that think, oh, well, you know, you don't have any problems because you don't owe any tax because you have this gift that the rest of us don't have, which is the foreign earned income exclusion. Well, okay. Um, first of all, most of us live in countries that have normal tax systems and we're paying tax on that money where we are. Um, right. The other, the, the other thing is, okay, the longer you live in a place, the more likely it is you are going to have forms of unearned income. Um, you're going to have uh, some sort of family leave benefit or maternity leave benefit, some sort of disability, uh, some sort of pension or retirement, um, some sort of you know investment income, uh, capital gain. I'm probably leaving something out of that list. And so none of those things have anything to do with the foreign income, earned income exclusion. Um, and, and so what you can find is really quite shocking is uh, you can have, it can happen, you have some sort of maternity or family leave benefit, a disability, unemployment, coming from the state where you live and the United, and, and probably where you live, um, or maybe where you live, either isn't taxing it or taxing it at a lower rate because they want you to have that money. But even if they're taxing it at a full rate, the United States still comes along and taxes it. And and that's where it's really even quite shocking when you think that you're on some sort of welfare benefit from the country where you live. And the United States says, oh, because you're a US citizen, because the recipient of, of those benefits is a US citizen, then we, the United States, have a right to, to tax some of that money. That is really quite shocking when you think about it. Right, absolutely. Um, yeah, you also mentioned, um, the acquisition and sale of assets, which is made really complex by the fact that every U.S. citizen who's filing U.S. taxes is assumed to do all of their business in U.S. dollars. Yes, and this is something that you and John know more about than I do. But yeah, what, what uh, happens is you're assumed to have purchased and to have sold, say, your family residence in the country where you live. You're, the U.S. assumes you've purchased and, and sold that in in U.S. dollars, and because right. of the way the currency value of the currency fluctuates, what can happen is you sell your home in the country where you live at a loss in the currency you actually bought and sold it in, 
but because of the currency fluctuations, the U.S. thinks you actually made a gain on it. Right. Or, or if you made a loss on the cur on the currency from U.S. dollar perspective, then you probably made a U.S. dollar gain on your mortgage, and that's taxable. And how can you make a gain on your mortgage? But they they treat it as you took the mortgage out in U.S. dollars, you paid it back with fewer U.S. dollars, so therefore, you have a gain. So yeah, that's fairly complex. Anything you'd like to add, John? Well, the gain is taxed as ordinary income. Right. And I mean, you know, if, if you're if it's a deemed uh, capital gain, uh, sorry, the game on the uh, the discharge of the mortgage, right, is taxed right. as income. The capital gain on the uh, sale of the house, I guess, taxed as capital gain, right? Right. So there's that there's that aspect to it as well. But it does seem to me that the root of this, the the thing that is the absolute worst, is. Uh, American citizens being tied to the U.S. dollar as the functional currency. So it's like everywhere they go in the world, you know, they have to behave as though they're running their life in U.S. dollars. And this is a, it, it really is a ball and chain. And I think it's the most significant ball and chain from which everything else follows. Right. Now, there were, uh, I think, a lot of very unhappy people in the U.K. right after Brexit when the pound dropped like crazy and um and they were hit with gains on their mortgages because of that because the pound was worth fewer u.s dollars when they discharged the loan well it, so. all of this you know really is uh i mean i hate to put it this way but uh you know you, you can't leave america uh, I mean, I think that's, an, you know, right. you can leave physically, but you can't uh, leave America as a U.S. citizen uh, and not be uh, ruled by the U.S. dollar, right? Yeah, well, and, and the other complexity that so many people forget is that there is a second tax system involved in all, for all of these people, the one where they live. And the interaction between that and um, the U.S. tax system Number one differs country by country, obviously, because tax systems are different in every country. And it can be totally unexpected that you end up with something you thought was a tax-free transaction or that your financial advisor where you live suggested that you do, and then all of a sudden there's a U.S. tax on it. Or the other way around. Well, I think what it does is that it incapacitates uh, many Americans abroad from being able to take advantage of the normal tax planning vehicles in the country they actually live in. Right. Absolutely. And yeah. what's interesting is that when the IRS is asked, can you help us, you know, help taxpayers in country Y to understand the implications of, of this particular thing? The IRS yeah, how are you my super taxed? <laughs> yeah, the, the IRS pretty much always won't give any assistance. Right. Um, so, you know, you're left to figure it out for yourself, and it's very complicated. 
And if you make a mistake, the IRS won't hesitate to let you know you made a mistake and penalize you for it. If they can figure out that it's a mistake, because they're not always right. Yeah. Well, it seems they don't always understand what the legal structure is in the country where you live. They almost (laughs) never understand that. Right. So they make assumptions. What happens is that the the interpretation of this has been downloaded uh, to the tax compliance industry. Which is why you have so many PFIX all over the place. Because I bet half of them aren't even corporations. Well, I, I, I would agree with you that tax repairs are very unlikely to start from the principle of is this mutual fund a trust or run as a trust or as a corporation. I would agree with you. They operate on the presumption that basically any non-U.S. mutual fund is a PFIC. Right. Uh, and that is... Uh, I think it's an incorrect assumption. It may be true in certain circumstances and not true in others. But the key point here is that the tax compliance industry actually makes the law in this area. And this is a real problem because, as we all know, the tax compliance industry operates largely, and this is understandable to a degree, and to protect themselves from giving any kind of incorrect advice. So, you know, I believe that there's a, uh, you know, far too much of, you know, well, when in doubt, let's take the uh, the worst interpretation for the taxpayer. Yep. When in doubt, if something is a trust, let's file a 3520. Um, and, you know, uh, this is very, very bad. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very bad. All right. Um, what I was trying to do with this with this discussion in the paper is is basically to say to those who seek to rationalize the system, oh, this is the price that you have to pay for your American citizenship. This is the price you you should accept um, because you get to be a citizen. You get to come back to the United States, uh, whatever right it is you want to to associate with 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 citizenship. Okay, we'll have another discussion separately about citizenship being a constitutional human right. What I'm trying to do with this particular uh, part of this paper is to say, okay, it's the price. It's the price of of our citizenship. Okay, let's look at that price. Have you looked at that price or are you just looking at it theoretically? We can't invest where we live. We can't plan for retirement where we live. We can't own the homes where we live. We have very expensive and complicated tax returns. Um, you know, we, we have these, you know, crazy things happen to us because of the currency fluctuations and being tied to the U.S. dollar. We have very complicated, complex filings if we want to operate a small business, setting aside the problems of the transition tax, the, the mm-hmm. repatriation tax. So none of these things, were, you know, they, people talk about these these rationalizations in theory and their theories never go far enough and address yeah. all of these complications. And they don't come, they don't address how the IRS cannot and will not administer the system. Um, right. They do not address how devastating these effects are for people and lead and, to people renouncing. Go ahead, Karen. And the things that cause a, 
impact are not just the taxes, they're the reporting as well. So FBAR, let's just talk a bit about the problems that having to report all of your foreign accounts to have signature authority on can cause to people. They don't get promotions. As soon as the employer finds out that, oh, but if you have signing authority over the company's accounts, you're going to have to list them on your FBAR. Or you, you, you can't become the treasurer of the local PTA equivalent because you don't have, want to be putting the PTA's accounts on your FBAR. People won't right? go into this, business with you if you, you know, some if you're an entrepreneur yep. with U.S. citizenship. Yeah, a lot of people have been um, knocked back with uh, investment opportunities and business opportunities because people don't want to get in bed with the U.S. government, so they're not going to allow a U.S. citizen to join them. Yeah, I can confirm that I have helped people renounce, uh, and their re their reason given was that they couldn't participate or buy into businesses as U.S. citizens. I mean, there's no there's no question about it. There but, were several people in our survey that that explained that that was their situation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But doesn't this largely, you know, come down to what U.S. citizenship is? I mean, the reality is that it, it's a property interest the U.S. government has in carbon life forms. That's what it is. And unfortunately, uh, you know, if you look at this this body of evidence, I don't think any reasonable argument can be made to the contrary. Yeah. Do you agree? It's supposed to be. That's not what it's supposed to be. That's what it is. Or do you disagree? I, I wasn't disagreeing with you, John. I'm saying that that's not what citizenship is supposed to be. Well, that's no. right. That's right. And, you know, I mean, the post-World War II concept of citizenship was to, you know, think of citizenship as a body of rights, right? Okay. In contrast to the whole you know, post-World War One concept of citizenship that seemed to focus more on the rights the countries have in their citizens. I don't think the United States ever moved beyond that. Well, certainly not in the tax arena. Well, I, I think it's quite clear that the United States hasn't moved beyond that, but it's not a surprise. I mean, well, Warren, Chief Justice Earl Warren did his best to at least move the United States partly past but the attitudes that people had about citizenship, uh, that, the, you know, the attitudes people had about, you know, you should lose your citizenship if you desert the army, if you marry a foreigner, if you, you know, live overseas for a certain amount of time, if you vote in a foreign election, the attitudes that people have that, that in their mind justify those types of laws, I don't think those attitudes have gone away. You know, I think people still have this, this attitude of, you know, you don't deserve to have your citizenship um, if if X, Y, and Z happens. And and they don't, people living in the United States are, are quite comfortable, many of them, with the idea of, of taking someone's citizenship away. They're not realizing, yeah, their, their attitudes towards it have definitely have not evolved since, since the 40s and 50s mm -hmm. and before that. You know, uh, I think I mentioned this before. Um, there's a great book, uh, my professor Amanda Frost wrote on this very topic, came out a year ago or so, I think it's called Not an American or something, but, you know, she goes through the history of this. This, by the way, this general attitude towards citizenship 
was not specific to the United States. It's just the, the United States never, never moved beyond it. And, you know, why is that? Well, I think it's because the United States is a large country. Uh, most people born in the United States just stay there forever. And I think it's a country where, you know, generally uh, it's a lot easier to live there without any particular awareness of the rest of the world. But it is a problem. It is a problem. Uh, it has made it so that uh, U.S. citizens cannot, for in the long term, all right, you know, live outside the United States. They can leave, you know, as digital nomads or whatever, you know, or as students for a time. But if they want to uh, live outside the United States and integrate themselves, fully integrate into another country, it's, I think, at this point, practically impossible. I have a personal story. Okay. Um, my uh, my niece, um, my brother's daughter, married um, uh, someone from a, a, another European country, not France. They live in the United States. Um, they have uh, two small children, and uh, they have citizenship of the country where my niece's husband is from. And my sister-in-law, who who you know has has only lived in the United States. Um, so my niece's mother, she told me, you know, she, she talked to me about this and she said, oh my gosh, you know, these kids have this other citizenship. And I had no idea how, what that meant or how great that was or all the opportunities they have because of this citizenship. And it was interesting to me. It's true. She, she never had any reason to think about the importance or the value of citizenship until it was personal to her. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, another aspect of, of this whole, you know, when we talk about the relationship between, you know, these rules and citizenship and the value of citizenship, um, you know, speaking to, uh, you know, the revelation of, of how valuable the U.S. citizenship was, it sounds to me as though these uh, children were dual citizens from birth. Were they born in the United States? Or? Okay. Yeah, they're, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the bottom line is that U.S. citizens who are dual citizens from birth actually have a preferred status of U.S. citizenship uh, because they can, you know, basically, uh, first of all, they have an automatic place to go. But under the exit tax rules and that they're not, you know, they can even avoid the exit tax, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So these tax rules have actually created what I've come to see as a caste system of citizenship where those who are dual citizens from birth actually have a preferred status of U.S. citizenship and are treated far better than those who are, you know, just U.S. only from birth. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing how these rules have created that, that system. All right. You can go back and you can say, you know, when people say, you know, this is the price you have to pay. Why does why do different people have so such wildly different prices to pay? Right. Well, yeah, it, the price it, if you yeah. live in the U.S. is minimal, really. The price of your citizenship. Well, whereas if you live that's, outside, that's another thing. Why is it that? Um, you know, if, if you, the people who will, who will assert these rationales, 
Well, if you say, okay, people who live in the United States, they're subjected to this, including people who aren't citizens. And they'll say, well, you, you live in the United States and you know you live here, you're part of the US community, you should be paying your taxes. And they will see no discrepancy there between you know non-citizens um, being subject to the tax, full tax system that, that citizen residents right. And since you leave the United States, suddenly the reason why you're meant to be taxed under that those very same rules suddenly changes. Well, why does the reason why why does the reason suddenly change? It, it just it, the, it makes no sense. It makes no sense at all. Mm-hmm. That that you're subject to exactly the same rules, um, but of course you're in a very different situation since you live in a very different place. Um, but the reason why you should be subject to those rules changes because you move. It doesn't, it, it's very yeah. convenient. It's just very convenient. So, so really what you're saying is that the tax system is discriminating against people who move outside of the U.S.? It, that's clearly the case. And that's what's talked about in, in paper number seven. But yes, mm-hmm. because you, you've got these rules and the United States says, okay, we are going to apply these rules to people who live outside the United States based on their nationality. And uh, what nationality are we going to single out for discriminatory and less favorable treatment? It's the American national. Right. And, and, you know, but why, why don't they have the right to do that? I mean, don't they have a, an interest in taxing Americans? Well, that gets to the second part of the of the six paper of the of paper number six. Okay, um, well, maybe you can lead us through that, Laura. <laughs> so, in that part, well, what we've we've basically um, what the second part of the sixth paper tries to do is address the lowest level of equal, equal protection scrutiny. In in the next one, we'll look at in in you know the highest level of equal can, protection scrutiny, which is. Can we go back um, just a second yeah. for, for the people who are listening and explain equal protection? Uh, you know, yeah. why we have different levels of scrutiny, et cetera? So under the 14, the way that the United States Supreme Court has interpreted the equal protection clause of the 14th Amendment is they have they have said that, and I'm summarizing a very complex discussion. Right. But basically what the Supreme Court has done is said, we will apply three different levels of scrutiny when it comes to an equal protection question. And uh, anything that has to do with race or nationality or country of origin, that is subject to strict scrutiny, which means basically, uh, unless the government, which clearly has the burden of proof, comes up with um, a very strong argument why that sort of discrimination is necessary, um, where it's going to be declared un- unconstitutional, which means pretty much any sort of discrimination based on country of origin, nationality, or race will be subject to strict scrutiny, and de- and the court will decide it's unconstitutional. Um, you have kind of, and then on the other hand, the lowest level of strict. Well, I'll do the the middle level. The middle level, um, which I can't remember what it's called. I've forgotten what it's called. Basically, it intermediate. Intermediate. Thank you. It applies to um, basically just distinctions based on gender or sex, um, where the court will say, you know, we won't subject that to strict scrutiny because there might be good reasons for it, 
but it needs a level of protection greater than the lowest level. And then the lowest level is rational basis. That's the level that was considered to have been applied by the court in Cook. And basically that means that as long as the classification has a legitimate purpose and the law in question has a rational relationship to that purpose, it will be, decide, it will be uh, declared to be you know, constitutional. Um, mm -hmm. Now my argument is that with, the, with our current system, it is and should be subject to strict scrutiny because it discriminates on the basis of nationality, which is clearly um, clearly under multiple decisions of the U.S. Supreme Court, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, it's subject to scrutiny unless, you know, there's a very good reason for it, it will be declared unconstitutional. Now, what I try to do in this last part of this sixth paper is to say, even if you do apply the lowest standard of rational basis, you still can't pass that, that there is still no rational relationship um, to, of the tax system. And so, you know, I, I, I break that up into, I look at the system as, as three different parts. I look at taxation on an ongoing basis. I look at FATCA and I look at the exit tax. So, um, you know, as far as the ongoing tax system goes, I, you, I think you have to say, look, um, if you wanna say that the United States could have a legitimate purpose in taxing the worldwide income of its citizens, this current system really has no rational basis to that purpose. How is there, what rational basis can there possibly be in stopping people from investing, stopping people from retirement planning, you know, making it so that they can't have certain jobs, making it so that they can't have bank accounts, you know, making it so that they're left off the titles to their family assets. What possible rational basis can there be in that type of system? Um, there is, there can't be one. Isn't the um, answer keeping and discouraging them from leaving the United States? Wouldn't that that's be? That's not a rational reason, John. Leaving one's country is a human right. And it's, that is in multiple human rights instruments that the United States has signed and ratified. So yeah, sure. Congress people have openly said, in fact, you know, when, when, uh, when the initial tax on income was adopted in the Civil War and was it was extended to the worldwide income of people living outside the country. Members of Congress said, we are doing this because we don't want people to leave the country. They never said we're doing this because we want the tax income. When um, the exit tax was, was you know, revised in the 90s, um, but even when it was first adopted in, in the 60s, the expatriation tax, and both instances, members of Congress were very clear. The purpose of the tax is to discourage people from leaving. The purpose of the tax was never to gain revenue, never. And yes, that is their purpose, but that's an illegitimate purpose. Um, multiple human rights instruments say that. And this goes back to you know, what we talked about, about the, 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 how attitudes about citizenship have shifted since World War II because of how citizenship was, was weaponized. And in World War II, there were people who were prevented from leaving their country and prevented from returning to their country. Those were all deemed human rights violations. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, let, let's say that um, 
you know, I mean, assuming that all of this is true, I mean, to, re to really simplify this, you would agree, both of you, that the United, that Americans abroad are subjected to a far more punitive taxes than the resident Americans, right? Yeah. Okay. So let's assume for a minute that, uh, you know, the idea of citizenship taxation, you know, taxing Americans abroad somehow is okay. Uh, can't the current system be sort of uh, criticized or analyzed simply on the basis that that even if it's okay to tax Americans abroad, it's not okay to tax them more punitively than resident Americans? Well, clearly, but they shouldn't be taxing people who don't live in their country in any event. No, I agree with you totally, but I, I see this as two separate issues, right? The yeah. first you know, is it reasonable for them to tax Americans? And obviously, I believe the answer is no. But let's say that, I mean, you know, you know what the political culture is there, right? You know, et cetera. Uh, but let, let's say that, you know, you don't make any headway with the argument that, uh, well, it's okay to tax Americans abroad. It just seems to me there's a separate argument, assuming they're to be taxed, not agreeing, but assuming they're to be taxed, isn't it wrong to tax them more punitively? than similarly situated resident Americans. Right. But how do you do citizenship taxation that's not more punitive? Because it's more punitive partly because you're subject to two sets of tax rules at the same time. I, I, I mean, I think that's a legitimate question, but I think that one answer, a partial answer, is to stop the nasty treatment of anything that's foreign, right? Yeah, or stop treating as foreign anything that's in the country that you live, where you yeah, live. You know, one or the other. But it's really it's really the designation of things as foreign that, you know, creates all the problems here. Or yeah, the tax code is very xenophobic. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, it does seem to me that there's multiple, multiple issues here. Mm -hmm. Anyway, um, it's a horrible thing. I think we all agree on that, regardless of... Uh, you know, the specific components, right? Right. But, you know, I think it might it might be maybe not in this podcast, but another one. I mean, if you could change two or three things, you know, what might they be? You know, et cetera. Because unfortunately, that's part of the of the political discussion surrounding this. But in any case. Any other thoughts on this, Karen? that we need to cover today or? I think Laura's done a really good job of, of describing the paper. Um, it's, uh, it, I really encourage people to download it and read it. There's a section called Devastating Effects where it lists a whole bunch of survey responses and you can really see from these responses how this really affects people. You might even um, recognize yourself in there. You might. Yeah, people People's might break it. The you will. They will. I think they probably no, will. Sure, I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure if these people respond to the survey, I, I hope that they do recognize themselves. Well, okay. yeah. uh, you know, I don't know, Karen, if you feel we've covered what we want to today, or Laura, I would invite you to do a wrap up that would include where people can read these wonderful papers. 
Yeah, well, I think, uh, like I said, I think Laura's done an excellent job of, of summarizing the paper. And I would encourage people to go to seatnow.org and um, look for our working paper series. It's linked several places on the, on the front page. And uh, download paper number six and, and take a read. All right, wonderful. Laura, any closing comments? No, just thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about it. All right, next time we will be back with working paper number seven. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Karen. Thanks, John.